pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast, and here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menners. And in this episode of the show, I have an extra special guest for you. I am lucky enough to be joined by one of the great characters in Australian cricket. He played seven tests for Australia, 123 one-day internationals, 15 T20 internationals. He won the coveted Cricket World Cup twice in 2003 and 2007. Welcome to the show, George Bradley Hogg. Welcome to the show, show Hoggy. Thanks for coming on. How are you? Well, I'm going very well, mate. Uh, yeah, no, it's, uh, can't wait to get over to Melbourne and start the Big Bash in about 20-odd days. Yep. How's your training coming along for the BBL? Uh, training's been going really well. Uh, I can't complain. I'm pr- probably feeling a bit fitter than what, what I did uh, five years ago. So, yeah, very happy where I'm at at the moment. Just hopefully the bowling uh, bowling stands up this year. Now, Hoggy, <laughs> I just got back from Adelaide. I, I was lucky enough to see the, the day-night test, and I had your new book, The Wrong, and as my companion for all the breaks. It was an excellent read. Uh, I have to say, I mean, your career just spans so long. It was such a good read. You know, hearing some, you know, from characters in the 90s all the way to now, just a fascinating book. You must be happy with the way it turned out. Uh, yeah, it was a long process. I didn't think it would take that long, but uh, it took over a year and a half. And uh, yeah, no, it was just a good, good feel just to to be able to be, be in a position where you could write a book. So it's a great privilege, one, to be able to be able to do that, uh, be able to be able to. Uh, don't know where that word came from, but um, yeah, it was just a great privilege to be able to uh, be put in a position where someone wanted me to write a book and. I've got to say, it was Greg Rowden who wrote the book. I just did the verbal stuff. So uh, let's not get too carried away about me writing the book. It was more about uh, therapeutic stuff, uh, just going back and revisiting your, your cricket career and um, just going, wow, uh, did all this happen? And uh, that, that was the journey that it took me to get where I am now. So it, it, was, just a, it was just a great uh, thing to do over the year and a half to... Uh, just be able to go back through your career and, and um, see, see uh, the road that I took. Now, um, I want to ask you about some of the different captains you had throughout your cricketing <laughs> career because, I mean, when you made your debut, Mark Taylor was your, your test captain and then you had you yeah. played under Steve Waugh. How did you find both of those blokes as captains? Oh, look, each, uh, each player that I've played with, uh, you know, they've all got their little different knickknacks and uh, different personalities and, uh, ways about going uh, going about their business. So Mark Taylor, he was more relaxed and probably Steve Wall. Steve Wall was one of those ones that led from the front, um, had that toughness about him. And if if uh, he the way that he was playing, he expected everyone else to play. If he couldn't do it, he wouldn't expect you to do it. Whereas Mark Taylor was pretty relaxed, uh, especially in my first couple of uh, games. I had no idea what I was doing out, uh, doing out international cricket at that stage back in 1996. I'd only just started bowling left arm leg spinners for two years, never done it before, uh, let alone uh, trying to bowl it, trying to work out how to get batsmen out and, and uh, know what I was doing. Um, it was a difficult art to take up in those first two years and the way he led me uh, in that tour of 1996 to India uh, was was unbelievable, especially with the um, uh, lack of knowledge that I had. So the way he handled me was exceptional and made me feel very welcome. 
Yeah, you talk about that first test in 1996 in India. <laughs> I remember that really well because it was actually one of the first tests from India televised on Australian TV. So we all got to watch it. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm sure Hoggy was bowling medium pace last time I saw him. And then all, all of a sudden you were you're bowling left arm leg spin. Yeah, yeah. I... <laughs> how how long was it before you started? How long was it when until you when you started to when you made your test debut bowling spinners? Oh, look, uh, 1994, I bowled them in the nets. That was February uh, 1994, 95, 94, 95. I started, yeah, so two, yeah, it was basically two years. 94, 95, I started bowling a bit of part time out in the middle. So I was bowling a lot for club cricket, but at shield level. Uh, I, was, I was sort of classed as a batting all-rounder. Um, yeah, so it was only two years before I represented my country that I was bowling uh, the left-arm Chinamans, and I'm glad I did. Otherwise, I wouldn't have. Uh, I definitely wouldn't have played as a bat. That's amazing that it's two years you're already you're playing the test side. Now, I want to go back to Steve Waugh. He sounds like he sounds like the ice man from what everyone says, but it seems like he he likes to play, play like to pull a few tricks in the in the background. Yeah. <laughs> I heard he yeah, stitched you a, up. Yeah, he, he stitched me up a couple of times actually, but he he's got a, he's got uh, a really wicked sense of humour. It's a dry humour, and you, it's unexpected, especially when, uh, the way that you see him out on the field. And uh, you know, you, you hardly ever see a smile come to his face while he's actually playing the game of cricket. So you're thinking, right? He's he's probably not that uh, that, that much of a humorous character. But when you get him behind closed doors and in the change rooms when the game's done and dusted, he uh, he can be quite funny. So yeah, there, there were a couple of pranks that he played on me very uh, very early in my career, and I was a very gullible character, as uh, probably you would worked out with the book and you know if someone if someone said jump it was just a matter of how high uh, they wanted me to jump so um, I was susceptible for a lot of, uh, to uh, well susceptible to a lot of blokes out there uh, playing pranks on me yeah that's just a uh, <laughs> naive boy from the bush yeah and um, what about the other captains so you had Ricky Ponting as your one day captain in the 03 and 07 World Cup did you ever have Michael Clark as a captain uh, look, I don't think I played under Michael Clark. I played under him as a vice captain, but uh, yeah, never, never had the luck to play under him as a captain. And um, yeah, look, each to their own. And you've been given the job, you've been handed the job um, from from the hierarchy for a reason. And uh, I, th- I think Cricket Australia saw that in, in all captains, they they saw the best out of those players and saw the le- leadership qualities out of those players. So if you get named as a captain for Australia, you've got to respect it. You've got to uh, uh, you've got to accept it, and the rest of the team have got to accept it. And uh, it's a great honour. And I think all captains that have, have done the role have accepted it and respected it. Yeah. Now I want to ask you about a captain of your state side that reading through the book I'm gathering wasn't your favorite skipper. I'm talking about a big Tom Moody. It yeah. just seemed that you had a sort of fracturous relationship with him. Did you ever patch that up? Yeah, no, it's, it's patched up, but you've got to remember that when uh, going through the books, it's my perception of it at that particular time. And uh, as, as a young player coming through the ranks, you sort of lose focus and all you, all you start thinking about is, your journey, um, how you, so I'd, I'd just come back, played, uh, come back from a tour from India in that particular scenario that you're talking about. And all I could think about was playing for Australia. Uh, and, I, and I lost that focus and, um, lost the values of being a team man there for a while. And, 
yeah, and I, I didn't really see that I was going down that path. All I could see was uh, where my career was. I, I'd forgot, forgotten about my teammates, and uh, yeah, I was a very difficult customer to captain at that stage. So, if you, if you read it, it does look like um, there's a there's a there's a sort of a touchy relationship between the both of us. But uh, by the time you get to the end of the chapter, you realise that uh, you know I could have done things differently, and you know that's that's the idea of the whole book is uh, to, to really expose my vulnerabilities and um, there's, obviously there's a lot of humour in there but it's also to um, sort of expose my vulnerabilities and just uh, you know uh, that journey that I took I had to change things within my uh, personal space to, to make sure that I was adaptable and um, and fit it into all the teams that I was uh, getting selected for. Well, you talk about you know opening up to your vulnerabilities. I felt the the most powerful part of the book was when it was sort of your your first retirement from the test. Well, when you retired from test cricket, I felt the book really conveyed your sense of confusion and anxiety about the whole change in your life. How was that for you opening up to Greg about that and talking about was obviously a really difficult part of your life? Uh, I, look, I, to be honest with you, I found it very easy to open up. Um, I go out and talk to kids uh, about resilience and uh, just striving uh, striving to have their journey of life and um, just explaining to them that you're going to have your ups and downs. And when it comes to question times, they really ask me some uh, really touching questions where uh, I've really got to open up and be honest and um, you know it goes to my dark times the things that I uh, am not too proud of that I've done in my life and um, you know if, if you're going to go and do that role and and, uh, and and speak to kids and try and be a bit of a role model uh, you've got to open up and say right well I did this I did that and I'm not proud of it but this is how I got around it to get my uh, life back on track so um, you know for me it was pretty easy to, to open up um, I, I don't I don't find uh, anything behind closed doors obviously there's a few family issues there which um, I, I, I opened up to a certain extent to protect the kids um, but other than that uh, any, anything that goes with me is fully in the book so um, yeah I found it very easy yeah, now on an earlier podcast, I had a guest on Gus Warland and he was talking about the way cricketers, um, you know, it's a, it's a hard thing to come forward and talk about your feelings. And I guess, you know, when you were going through this dark time, you probably felt it was hard to, to come out and talk to anyone. Do you think that's changing in the Australian landscape? Do you think cricket dressing rooms are, are getting more open and people can talk about their feelings more? Yeah, look, I, I, I just, for, for me personally, I whether it be in a shearing shed on the farm or uh, in a cricket team, I, I think I've, uh, I, the way that I was brought up and um, uh, I, I really had a great upbringing, I, I just felt the way that I am, I, I don't think I would have opened up to anyone. Uh, it was just one of those things, I'm a man, I'm tough, I, I can get through anything and uh, this is my problem, this is my issue and I'm going to deal with it uh, behind closed doors. But at the end of the day, you, you do need help. Uh, if, you, if you've got close friends, uh, it's always good just to speak to them. Uh, for me, it, it was great to write it down, actually. Um, I, I find it better to write it down, but it's also good to talk to close friends. Uh, my best mate, uh, who I saw the other day, who's just finished reading the book, said, I had no idea that you were going through this and uh, he was a little bit disappointed that I hadn't spoken to him about it and um, yeah that was six years ago so uh, he had no idea that I went through that till he read the book same with my brother same with my mum and dad so 
um, that, that's how closed off I was. Well, it's good that it's, um, I think it hopefully will encourage, you know, other cricketers who read the book if they grab a mate, if they've got something to talk about. Yeah, it doesn't matter whether you're a cricketer or a, uh, a, a labourer, uh, or, or even women for that instance, or even kids. If you've got an issue, find someone that you can trust, someone that you can, uh, just, uh, lay your head on their shoulder and, uh, just, you know, uh, let it all out. You feel a lot, a hell of a lot better, and the weight's off your shoulders, and uh, you, you can move forward. You've already started that journey of, of fixing the situation or, or moving into a more positive space. So, yeah, it's, it's just not about cricketers; it's about uh, anyone out life that's going through a tough time. Yeah, I totally agree. Now, there's some really good stories in the book. Uh, winning the World Cup twice must have been a personal, I mean, personal highlight for you. But also, I think you you describe it like when you win a game for Australia, like a kid getting chocolate. Yep. Um, which seems like a pretty accurate description, that sort of all-encompassing joy you get as a kid. Yeah. Is, is that how it felt, those moments when you won the World Cup? Well, look, uh, playing cricket for Australia just felt like a kid on chocolate. If I really want to describe it to, to the biggest extent, mum, my mum makes great sponge cakes. Uh, she puts cream in it with a banana in it. And um, if she puts chocolate icing on it, uh, that's what it's like winning for Australia. Um, the, the sponge cake with the cream and banana is just playing for Australia. But if you win, uh, the, the chocolate icing uh, is, the, is the stuff on top. It's uh, it's just a great feeling. It's a great honour to be able to represent your country. And really, when when you, when you get to that stage, you you are role models. You're representing the uh, you're representing your country, and you've got to do it, you've got to do it right. All, all sportsmen, as they're coming through, they dream of playing for their country. They dream of playing for the uh, the, the top team in the country and you don't realise the impact that you do have uh, with, with, with society or with kids uh, that are watching you so it's very important that you take it with uh, a huge responsibility that um, you, you're doing it the right way and setting the example for the next generation coming through and I, I, I guess that's probably we lost our way with Australian cricket over the last couple of or five or six years and I think just with the last test match, the Adelaide test match, it just looked as though that pride of the baggy green has come back to the, uh, to, to the uh, well, come back of age of, of what it was like many moons ago. So I'm not having to go at those players that have gone through that period. Um, it was just an environment that, was, um, that they were put in. They all wanted to represent their country. But it probably um, they, they probably would have liked to have done it a little bit differently. And what about the the structures in cricket? I mean, you've been around for so long. Do you think that you know that they've messed with the pathways at Shield level? You know, you talk to grey cricketers; they seem to be alienating some of the older players. Do you think they've got to get fix it up and go back to the way it used to be? Oh, there's definitely got to be some changes. I've, I just played a great game the other day where we had one bowler in our team that could only bowl 10 overs in the day. So we've got 90 overs to bowl in that day. The other team had three bowlers that were only uh, able to bowl 10 overs. Spell, uh, 10 overs. So, that's, so they had three bowlers, that's 30 overs. They had to find another 60 overs. One, it's not good for the game. It's not good for batters coming through. They're not facing the best bowlers. And these bowlers aren't get, um, uh, spending time out in the middle doing doing what they're uh, striving to do, and that's that's been first class bowlers and even international bowlers. So I think we've got we've got to change our ways uh, a little bit. I think we've got to start at a young age, start teaching kids uh, the basics of the game of cricket, even to the age of uh, eight years of age, and hopefully by the time those kids are at eight, eight, nine, ten. 
that you've been teaching them when they get to the uh, age of 15, 16, 17, when they've got a bit of a bit more testosterone in their bodies and uh, they don't want to listen to mum and dad or uh, anyone like that and, and they think they can go do it, do it on their own, at least they've got that basics. At least they've got a game plan out there and, and they can go out and, and take the game on. And uh, by the time they get to first-class cricket, um, they, they should be ready for it. They should be able to know how to make a 100. They should be able to know how to construct a spell and, and bowl tightly. And um, I, I think we've lost our way in that regard. I think we're too heavy coaching at the top end where it, pro- where it shouldn't be needed. Uh, but we should be putting more coaching resources back out the bottom end around the ages of 8, 9 and 10. Yeah, that's a really interesting. I mean, that's one of the things everyone's saying that the the high the high performance unit's not really pulling its weight. I'd, 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 yeah, but on that on that, I wouldn't say it's a high performance not pulling their weight. Each player owns their game. Each player wants to play first class cricket. Each player wants to make a living out of it. Now they own their game. As they come through, they uh, each player's got a mentor, their own personal mentor. It's up to them to uh, utilise re- those resources to the best of their ability. You can have all the technique, you can have all the coaching staff out there, but if you're not mentally tough, you're not going to make it. So um, at the end of the day, it's the player's ownership of their game um, rather than uh, rather than all the coaching staff out there. So I, that's why I say that we've got too many coaches. But they've, they've got to strengthen the, gra- the grade scene again and and get the second second eleven shield games back up to being competitive rather than sort of practice matches. I mean, exactly if... right, and that's where that's where that's where they need more. Uh, that's where they need a lot more coaching resources and uh, just to help out those uh, grade teams, even in the, more so in the junior ranks than the than, than the senior ranks. Now, before I let you go, I've got to, you've got to help me with a couple of things. Now, firstly, you've played in nine T Twenty teams across seven countries. You played in a lot of the the big T20 franchise leagues all all around the world. Now, I want you to help me with this question. Hang on. Did you say 19 T20 teams? No, nine T20 teams. Yeah, nine. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I thought That's it what was it said 19. in your book. If, I, if it was 19, I'm not, I'm not a wanted character, am I? Could <laughs> <laughs> be a few more. Yeah. Uh, now, when, when you played in the IPL and the Big Bash, I thought last season the Big Bash, the standard of play improved a lot and it seemed to almost be at the same level of the IPL as the, the on-field standard. What's your thought on that? Do you think the BBL and the IPL are roughly the same level or is the IPL still ahead? Uh, oh, look, each is a different competition. You've got one where uh, the IPL, you play each other twice and it goes for two months, whereas the Big Bash only goes for a month or slightly less and you're only playing seven games so yeah it's, it's very hard to describe but we're very lucky with the big bash that it's over christmas pres- uh, period that's our holiday period and it gets the public involved so that makes it an even bigger biggest spectacle um i think the marketing side and the entertainment that's off the off field as well uh does wonders for the game and the way that uh the way that it's telecast on the tv and radio it, it's just a exciting package it's an entertaining package and that's what cricket's all about yeah it's great to go out there and win but if you're not entertaining if you're not providing uh, good entertainment for those viewers you're not going to have a decent product and i think the big bash uh is uh, the cricket out in the middle has been fantastic but also the entertainment off field's been brilliant the ipl I think the cricket is absolutely magnificent over there. You've got different conditions. You've got uh, different wickets where uh, all the skills have to be on show throughout the tournament. You've got to be able to play spin. You've got to be able to play pace. 
and uh, you, you also have those flat wickets where batsmen can really dominate. So the skills over there are tested a little bit more for the for the players. But at the end of the day, both competitions are, are head-to-head, side-by-side. So, yeah, it's it's at the end of the day, it's entertainment. And uh, I, I think the IPL, uh, especially in the first six years, um, did exceptionally well with their entertainment uh, off-field. I think um, they're still doing it reasonably well now, but uh, I think it's not as good as what it was in the first six years. Uh, but the, the big bash, um, they've got to make sure that they don't get too greedy with the product that they've got now. It's perfect as it is, and uh, the public are absolutely loving it. So, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, just little tweaks here and there to, to improve it, but don't try and uh, drastically change it. Yeah, I'm really excited about the Big Bash. I'm actually doing a podcast all about the Big Bash. It's called the Big Smash Cricket Podcast, and we're going to be reviewing the whole tournament. And one interesting thing, Hoggy, is you're a, a passionate West Australian. comes through in your book. How is it going to be when you line up against the Scorchers for the first time? What, what's that going to be like playing against your, your home state? Oh, obviously uh, you're going to have mixed emotions going through it, but at the end of the day, once you cross that white line, it doesn't matter who I'm playing for, uh, you know, I'm playing to win. So um, it's, it's still going to be very competitive and, um, you know, decisions are made to uh, throughout your career, throughout your journey, and uh, sometimes you've got to make the tough decision to uh, make sure that you're still playing at the highest level. And uh, that, that's the decision that I've made, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to the journey over in Melbourne. And look, at the end of the day, I've, I've been with WA for 23 years. I've played against Victoria uh, every year of that 23 years. And um, uh, because of that uh, Aussie rules uh, rivalry, you could say, uh, there's always been a tough rivalry between Victoria and WA. It's probably the worst rivalry um, in, in the country uh, in, in cricket uh, <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a sense that uh, you really go hard at each other. And uh, to be sitting on the other side of the fence is, is just going to be a wonderful experience to see see how the other side do it and uh, how, how they cope with it. And uh, look, with stuff that I want to go move on to for, moving forward, uh, I've, I've got a wider range of experience now being able to be with a WA team than all of a sudden a, a team that's uh, probably in, in, in the heart of sport in, in Australia. So um, just to, just to feel with how uh, the Victorians re- react to WA, but also how they react to uh, their, their fans out home, being being probably the uh, the biggest fans in, in the country. Oh, it's going to be really exciting. You're coming up to Sydney, no doubt, and playing the Strikers and uh, the Sixers and the Thunder, so it should be a really good tournament. I've got to get used to uh, used to that coming up to Sydney rather than coming across to Sydney. Don't I? Uh, those, are, those are the terms that I've got to get used to. So, uh, look, look, I'm really looking forward to that, and uh, I, th- I think uh, that, that's probably the hardest thing with Sydney and uh, Victoria is having two teams in their state and all the other teams having one team. But uh, that's what you get to being the biggest cities. Uh, you you want to spread the game, you want to expose the game, and uh, we've got enough talent around the uh, around Australia to have eight teams in the competition. And I, I think it's it's great to have those uh, derbies over in Sydney and Melbourne. I think it's created a a lot more hype in the game rather than just having state on state. And as we've seen with the spectators, uh, they're, they're really getting on board with it. And uh, the, the cities are slowly separating between north and south or east and west, whichever way you want to go with it. Uh, I think it's east and yeah. west over in, um, in Melbourne. I'm uh, not sure, quite sure what it, what it is in Sydney. But 
I, I, I just think it's uh, it's great to um, when, when you've got those two capital cities that uh, have got a, a huge population. Uh, it, it's good to sort of have two teams in there to, uh, to to get a bit more excitement in the in the uh, city in the game of cricket as well. Yeah, it's going to be a great tournament. Best of luck with the Renegades for the upcoming BBL. And thanks so much for coming on the podcast. You're actually my first Australian men's test cricketer to come on the show, so I really appreciate it. Oh, that's all right, mate. I'm, I always like being a guinea pig, so I hope it went all right for you. <laughs> yeah, well, thanks again, Hoggy. Best of luck this summer. We'll be following, as I said, I'll be doing a podcast on the Big Batch, so I'm going to be watching all the games, and I uh, can't wait to see you out there. Yeah, I, I, sorry. I was just going to say it was a great book, The Wrong, and I, I thoroughly recommend all the listeners should pick a copy up. You know, just you just play, played with so many different characters and just a fascinating book. Yeah, no, thanks very much for that. Um, yeah, no, it was really enjoyable, and hopefully the people that do read it, hopefully they get a bit of entertainment out of it and uh, enjoyment as well. So, yeah, no, thank you very much for supporting the book. Thanks, Hoggy. Take care. Thanks, Good luck. Mate. Thank you, mate. Cheers. What a marvellous day. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series.